hustle, sweat, the grit behind the glory. Here, we put in the hard work, work that keeps us flexible, nimble, strong, work that finds the power in ideas connecting, thoughts colliding, and potential unlocked, work that changes the world and changes with it, because nothing worth doing comes easy. We are Nebraska. So that video was from this campaign that happened in 2018 called um, In Our Grit, Our Glory. And I loved it because um, I think grit is a synonym. We've used it as an easy access way to understand what resiliency is. And we've been talking about resilience and it's hard to maybe wrap our brain around that, just understand it as grit. That campus-wide campaign that happened, um, every person got a t-shirt and so that was, a, everyone got one of these and they were all supposed to wear them. It was in, I think, in conjunction with the 150th anniversary of the university. And it was this widely understood campaign of trying to identify who we are and aspiring to who we should be. It was partially based on um, a quote, actually, from Hartley Burr Alexander, which is etched on the wall of Memorial Stadium. This would be the quote. Not the victory, but the action. Not the goal, but the game. In the deed, the glory. And because I know people who know people, I was able to actually have conversation with someone who is a part of the creation of this In Our Grit, Our Glory campaign. And I learned that it was only partially based on that quote from Burr, uh, from Burr Alexander. I, I want you to actually think about Hartley Burr Alexander if you're a history buff. Do research on that guy. He is a cool Nebraskan. I think a movie should be made about that guy. He did a lot of cool stuff. And so if you're interested in history, look up Hartley Burl Alexander. I went down that rabbit hole this week and it was fascinating. So they created this campaign in part based on this quote, but it's more than that. It's actually kind of aspirational, they said. They spent a lot of time talking about who we are as Nebraskans, what characteristics, and the word grit kept just bubbling up. It kept being the word that they looked at. And it's not my grit, it's our grit. It's not your grit. It is this collective thing that we possess together. And so they wanted this also to be for students to understand that this is who we are as Nebraskans, but this is who we want us to be. This is who we want you to be. This is what we are together. Together we show grit. Now, um, I think that is awesome that it's aspirational and that's where it kind of touches the church. Um, in this wonderful book that we've been looking at, um, Tempered Resilience by Pastor Todd Bolzinger, Bolzinger talks about this as well. He says that grit is a collective thing. We like to think of resilience as something that we do, and we can, as individuals, tough our way through it, through things, but what's best is to have a process and to have a community through which resiliency is bred and nurtured and is the norm. We are more resilient when we work together, right? That is why we are doing this series. Whenever we get deep into a series, I like to 
remind ourselves why we're doing a series because we get a little deep into it and maybe we forget. And so I want to just bring this as a reminder. The reason why we're having this conversation on resiliency is because we've all kind of noticed for, I think actually even multiple generations now, that our children are less resilient than they used to be. They have less an ability to get through to the point where we even notice that less resilient generations are breeding than even less resilient children. And we've all kind of seen that and noticed it. And we've kind of discredited it a little bit because every generation thinks that the next set of generation doesn't do it the way they should or the way we would have. But even more than that, now, because of social science research, we can see empirically and statistically that this is bearing out. This is what is true. The amount of prescriptions being prescribed for anti-anxiety, antidepressants, the amount of um, people who are doing hurtful behaviors to themselves, the suicide rates, for example, are skyrocketing. And we can just see that we are having less and less resiliency to get through the hard times. And while we all kind of noticed it, and now it's been mostly proven, even and especially before the pandemic, let alone after the pandemic, it's good for us to have conversation about it. And as we have want to do here at Sheridan, to meet that head on and be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Because we know that God doesn't will this for us, right? that God wants us to be strong and resilient. And again, the biblical witness is so pertinent here because look at your Bible and what you see over and over again are these people who've gone through tremendous hardship and come out better for it on the other side and more faithful on the other side. And that's what God calls us to be and how we are to live our lives. And as a church, that's why we enter into this discussion. And I mean, it's been a part of, I hope, what you've heard from us for years. I feel like I regularly say that we are so much better together than we ever are by ourselves. And again, as Bolzinger points out, we have this, as this campaign for University of Nebraska points out, when we collectively claim a process and a community through which we try to be resilient, which we work on being filled with the grit to get through, that is the glory for us and for God. Well, Bolsinger in his book, he, he points out the different aspects of what goes into being resilient. And the aspect that we're focusing on today is the aspect of trust. He points out the importance of trust in the process of being resilient, especially if you're a leader and what he talks about in terms of leadership and trust, I found very interesting because he points out whether you're creating a, a sports team or um, a team that has to do with um, putting together arts like uh, music or dance or if you're putting together a professional team to work together um, uh, in, off, in and around an office. Here's the one way trust isn't gained. Trust is not gained by working on trust, right? If you bring your office team in here and like do trust falls and those kinds of things, it's not gonna make anybody trust anybody else more. And offices oftentimes make the mistake of we're gonna work on trust. It doesn't work that way. 
What he points out in his book, which I believe to be true, is the way that trust is garnered is by people passionately pursuing what God calls them to pursue. So when we passionately chase after the things that we know we are supposed to be chasing after, when God puts it in front of us and we pursue it with passion, therein is the building of trust. That's where trust comes from. We wind up becoming consistent then. When we passionately chase after what God calls us to go after, then we become consistent in our actions and it's that consistency over time that breeds trust. And I think that that's what we have here at Sheridan. If we can point to one thing that's made us successful over the last two decades, it's that we've pretty much passionately worked towards one thing. And the folks who, if you consider yourself a stakeholder here, that's certainly what I experience of us all. We all come here passionately pursuing this one thing. And it's that consistency over time that has built our trust in one another. Now again, trust cannot be garnered. It can only be earned. I remember when I was uh, a floundering young adult, um, when I was in my teens, and I can remember asking my father, why don't you trust me? And you know, I just want you to trust me on this. I remember my father's answer to me was very consistent. He would always say, if you want to be trusted, you have to be trustworthy. And that spoke volumes to me. And if you want to see other people, if you want to be able to trust other people, you also have to be trustworthy. Because if you're not trustworthy, you're assuming that no one else is. <laughs> and the only way then to trust the world is to be trustworthy yourself. And the only way to get people to trust you is to be worthy of the trust that they give to you. You don't have to be perfect, right? You just have to passionately pursue what God has put before you and then you will be trusted. And that's super good for us to understand as a church, especially on Reformation Sunday, especially with Luther. Because that's what Luther talked about, right? You don't have to be perfect. I found this meme that I thought was perfect for Reformation Sunday. Coffee first reached Europe in 1515. Martin Luther sparked the Reformation in 1517. Beware of a caffeinated pastor. Well, a story is are often told about Martin Luther on Reformation Sunday. I think those stories fall short and fail when they uh, fail to talk about Luther and his passion because Luther was an incredibly passionate person. And if you want to understand Luther at his best, you understand him as being passionate because that's what he was. Luther was an Old Testament scholar and he studied the Latin and the Hebrew and he studied the Old Testament, the prophets, but specifically the law, and he passionately pursued that. And he understood the law so well that he knew that he was never going to be good enough in the eyes of God. There's no way he could fulfill the law. And so he passionately pursued that. A self-loathing, a hatred of himself, of a God who would create him so unable to do what he was supposed to do. By today's standards, he had mental health issues. 
He was having a mental health crisis over this. Quite honestly, he was, knew he was just never going to be good enough and it nearly drove him insane. It was only until his mentor told him to start studying the New Testament. And he was in what was called the castle part of um, the Wittenberg church. And he um, started, we were studying the, the book of Romans that we had read for us. And he heard that it wasn't what you did that saved you, but rather your faith. And that tower experience changed him. And it was from that point that he started passionately then pursuing this understanding that the church was denying that you just had to have faith. And so he had so many problems with how the church was operating that then he wrote them all down. He nailed them to the wall 505 years ago of the, the door of the, of the church on the eve of the holy day, All Saints Day. They got picked up by this new thing called the printing press and they got printed and distributed and eventually it led to a lot of arguing and yelling and screaming and insulting and Luther was great at that. And he finally got brought before you know the authorities, if you will, of the church and basically said you either recant your statement or, or, or you're guilty. And he said, I won't and I can't. And that would have effectively meant the end of his life because they wouldn't have killed him, but if somebody else did, no one would have been prosecuted for it. So essentially he was dooming himself. It was on the way out of that experience that he was kidnapped in a friendly way by people who cared about him and brought to um, the Wartburg Castle. This is actually the room where he studied. Well, he, um, in there, in that room, started translating the Bible. Now, I wanna go back a slide, I think, to, to the Romans text, because it's so important for us to understand what he was studying when he was transformed. He studied, it was this text that brought the light bulb. It was this text that made all of the difference. For, it, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The one who is in a right relationship with God, the one who is made right with God, they're made right by God simply by their faith. And later we hear that it's in Christ who died and rose for us, right? And so it is nothing that we do that makes us righteous, but it's our faith in the righteousness that Christ won for us. That is the pivotal experience. That's what Luther wanted each and every person to know. Well, when he was taken to this room, we can go back to the picture of his room. When he was taken, he spent 300 days in captivity and he wasn't being held like a prisoner, but he was just told, you have to hide out here. So he was going crazy, because he was a highly productive guy, highly energized guy, very social, and he was just kind of going bonkers, stuck in this room. And so what he asked for was his Bible research material, and he got a Latin Vulgate, which was the Bible of choice for him, the New Testament written in Latin, because he was an expert in Latin. He got a Greek New Testament, which is the original language of the Bible, and he basically wrote every single line from the New Testament, line by line, it took him eight weeks, and he wrote it all out in German. 
And what was fascinating about that is that Germany had no one language. It was all these dialects all around. And so he took that, um, and he wasn't the greatest Greek scholar, so he handed it off to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, who was a far better scholar than he was, and he kind of went over it as well with uh, the Greek. And Luther actually was disguising himself. He would put on a disguise, and then he would go out to the gathering places bars, and he would hang out there, and he would listen to folks talk so that he could choose the best German word for every word that he had a question about. And it was 500 years ago last month that it finally all got taken, put together, printed, and released, and this book called Luther's September Bible was released 500 years ago this year, a month ago. And that was the Bible that changed the world. Literally changed the world. It created a unified German language and it gave access to people to the word of God. Now, here again, the trust component in Luther. He trusted God, trusted the community, especially the scholars that he gave it to and the people that he spoke with, and he trusted his own work in this the passion to get God's word of grace into the hands of the people. Think about what that meant. No longer did every single person have to rely on their pastor to learn anything about God. And if you were lucky enough, and only probably about a quarter of the people in those days were lucky enough, if you were lucky enough to be taught how to read and write, then you would yourself have access to God's word because the Bible was printed and ready for you. It literally changed the church and changed the expression of our faith. So on this Reformation weekend, on this Reformation Sunday, our hope is that you can take the time to reflect on how passionately you're pursuing what God has placed before you. What has God given you to do? And how passionately are you following it? How much are you being able to be trustworthy, worthy of that trust of other people because of how passionately you're pursuing? Do that. In there lies the key to resiliency and community. Amen.